Welcome to Central Assembly's podcast. Here is a message from our lead pastor, Kurt Jenkins. We pray this message speaks to you. Today, I'm going to talk about, uh, we're going to continue in the God is Good series, and I think we're going to wrap it up uh, next week. We started out just by talking, just by hitting you from all different verses uh, throughout the Bible about the goodness of our Father, the goodness of our Creator. The second week, we talked about the Old Testament, specifically the Old Covenant and the different covenants within the Old Testament. Then the third week, we just talked about worshiping Him, entering into a place of His presence where our doubts in His goodness can just be all dissolved in his presence. But today I want to talk about Jesus. I like to talk about Jesus. That's what we're going to talk about. (laughs) You know, a few weeks ago we did talk about when we're looking through the Old Testament into God, that the Bible says that we look at it at him as if we've had a veil. So a lot of times if we look just at the Old Testament, we're looking at God and we're seeing things like, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. How can I say God is good? And then I see this activity throughout the Old Testament. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting at verse 7, it says, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It says, the old way, which is the old covenant. The old way with laws etched in stone, right? The The old covenant, the Ten Commandments. It says, led to death. Though it began with such glory that the people of Israel could not bear to look at Moses' face. It says, for his face shone with the glory of God, even though the brightness was already fading away. It says, shouldn't we expect far greater glory under the new covenant or the new way now that the Holy Spirit is giving life? If the old way, the old covenant, which brings condemnation, was glorious, how much more glorious is the new way which makes us right with God? Now, we talked about this a few weeks ago. God is the same in the old covenant and in the new covenant. It says here, the old covenant was glorious, but how much more glorious is the new covenant now that we have the very Spirit of God living within us? See, when we're looking at God just through the old covenant and the Old Testament, we see Him interacting in certain ways that we already talked about. I'm not going to touch on it this week. But when we enter in to the new covenant through Jesus Christ, it says we have the Holy Spirit living in us. Now, one of the titles of the Holy Spirit is the teacher or the counselor. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit is guiding us into all truth. So though in the old covenant, God did reveal himself within the tabernacle, within that holy of holies, even to Moses, he is now being revealed by the Holy Spirit. And we are being guided into all truth as if the veil has been removed. And it says it in verse 12. Since this new way gives us such confidence, we can be very bold. How can we be bold? It's because the old covenant brought condemnation. The old covenant brought shame. The old covenant made us realize how far and separate we were from God. But the new covenant is saying you're right with God. You're together with God. You've been accepted by God, and you're a child of God. Now that can give us confidence, and it can give us hope, knowing this is a far greater glorious way than the old way was. It says, we're not living like Moses, who put a veil over his face so the people of Israel would not see his glory, even though it was destined to fade away. But the people's minds were hardened. And to this day, whenever the old covenant is being read, the same veil covers their minds so they cannot understand the truth. Listen to that. This, this is being written around 55 AD, 
which is about two decades after the church was birthed. This is after Jesus died on the cross, was buried, was resurrected, and then ascended back to the Father. The church has been alive well. And he's saying, even today, when people are reading about the old covenant, the old way, their minds are still and their hearts are hardened and their minds are covered with the veil. I believe 2,000 years later, that still can happen. When you're reading and you're focusing, I'm not devaluing the Old Testament. The Old Testament and the Old Covenant had a great purpose. It was to point to Jesus. It was to point to the new covenant, the better covenant. So I'm not devaluing that. I'm saying is if, if you're just looking at, the, at God's word, you're just looking at God through the old covenant, your heart will still be veiled today. It says, and this veil can be removed only by believing in Christ. It's quite clear. Hard-heartedness, spiritual blindness removed only by believing in Christ. Verse 15, it says, yes, even today, when they read Moses' writings, their hearts are covered with that veil and they do not understand. Verse 16, but whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. It says, for the, the Lord is spirit. And wherever the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now people misinterpret that word. It's freedom to do whatever I want. I'm going back to my old way of life. No, it's freedom to know the truth. It's freedom from the bondage of sin. It's freedom from the chains that bind you. That's what the freedom is. And we get that when we come to the Lord. It says, so all of us who have had the veil removed can see and reflect the glory of the Lord. And the Lord who is spirit makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. I want you to look at verse 18 in two different translations that should be up there. The New Living Translation, I just read to you, that those who have had the veil removed can see and reflect the glory of God. A more accurate translation is the NASB. It says, but we all, with unveiled face, behold, as in a mirror, the glory of the Lord. So what it's saying here is our vision is now clear. We could stand before God and behold his glory as clearly and as personally as if you were face to face with yourself in a mirror. And that's only done by coming to know Jesus Christ, the veil being removed. Now this word glory here, what are we saying? We're beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. That word glory means the presentation of God's infinite and majestic nature. So anytime God's will, his nature, his presence, his majestic character is presented on this earth, his glory is also presented. Now I want you to catch this. How can we behold the glory of the Lord? How are we brought into this truth? How is the veil removed? We just read it. Yeah, this is quite simple. It's like a Sunday school class. Every answer is Jesus. <laughs> so what this is showing you is this. If you're looking at God and evaluating God's uh, character and his nature, all these words that we have, only by looking at the old covenant, it's going to be as if our understanding is veiled. When we come to know Christ as our Lord and Savior, the veil is now removed and it's clear. It's like God hands us a spiritual mirror and we can see God's glory face to face. Because we now have the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So if we look at God 
through the life of Jesus, we will be able to see that God is truly good. That's what we're going to do today. We're going to look at God through the life of Jesus. I think what, what has happened sometimes is we get stuck in, in some Old Testament passages. I want you to think of this. <clears throat> Maybe when you've met somebody for four or five different times. Maybe you met a dad of a, and he had children. And you've seen him just four or five times. But every time you saw him, he was disciplining his child or children. So you see him disciplining, you see him moving them over here, recorrecting them, putting them back on the path. By that fourth or fifth time, you're probably thinking like, this, this guy does not know what he's doing or he is like really mean. But could it be so that that parent is an excellent, good parent, holy, righteous, doing everything he's called to do, but actually has a rebellious child that isn't doing what they should be doing? Is that possible? And is it possible that you wrongly judge that father only because of the, inter the limited interactions that you've seen with his child? Yes. The same is true with God. If you limit looking at God only through the old covenant, which points everything to the new covenant, then you see him in a limited fashion. But when we look at God's word fully and we look at God through Jesus and his life and his lifestyle and his motives and his actions and everything that he did, now we will see that God is good very, very clearly. I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. I said it to uh, the school, the CCA students a few years ago, and it's kind of just stuck with me when I was teaching one of the, uh, the chapels, that Jesus is God in a body. Jesus is God in a body. We can't make the separation. Yes, he chose to empty himself, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. But primarily, Jesus is God in a body. Another way that it's put is Jesus is perfect theology. When we see the life of Jesus, we see the will of God. So what we have to do is we have to learn God's nature through the nature of Jesus. In Hebrews chapter 1, starts off at verse 1. Once again, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It's the Bible that you guys have uh, in front of you in your pews. It says, long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. Now, let's just stop there for one second. Look at this. In the Old Covenant, God used prophets to communicate from God to the people, okay? So how people learned about God a lot of times was through prophetic warnings, like turn or punishment is coming your way. You better get right with God or God's wrath is about to pour out on you. In the Old Covenant, this is the way it worked. God spoke through prophets to men. And it says in verse 2, And now in these final days, He has spoken to us through His Son. So God is now revealing Himself, not through men and women. God has revealed Himself through His Son. So anytime we want to see the nature of God, we just look back to the Son. We look back to Jesus and he recalibrates our thoughts and our theology of what the will of God truly is. It says, God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance. And through the Son, he created the universe. Now this one verse, verse 3, has helped me understand the goodness of God and the will of God more than any other verse in, in the entire Bible. It caught me, I don't know if it was eight or nine years ago, and I read this verse and I was like, I get it. I finally get it. Verse 3, it says this, the Son, this is Jesus, radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. 
I actually like how it's written in a few other translations. So we have it up here in the NIV, I believe, and in the NASB. It says, the Son, who's Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The NASB says that he's the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. Now follow this out here. That word radiance means this, the quality of sending out rays of light. So what Jesus did everywhere he went is he sent out rays of God's nature and God's character, right? Everything he did, everywhere he went, he, it wasn't possible for him to distribute or disperse anything that wasn't of God because Jesus is God. Are you following me? Say amen. Say I'm awake. All right, that's good. So everything that he did, everything that he said, every action he took, every conversation that he was with, he was radiating God. His very nature and his very being. And in fact, he was radiating his glory. It says it in that verse. So Jesus went around representing the infinite and majestic nature of the Father in everything that he did. That word exact representation means exactly what it says. It was an exact representation, a carbon copy. And ex there's an exactness about who Jesus is and God's nature is that we can't miss. So when you look at this, Jesus, it was impossible. Jesus chose to walk out the fullness of God's will for his life. Everything that Jesus did was the will of God. It might seem like, oh, that, okay, we, we get that. There was something about it when I started looking at some of the, the, uh, the misconceptions that we have, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes, about when natural disasters hit and what some Christian leaders say, how to interact with sinners and how to interact with people who aren't following God how to deal with physical healing, salvation, all these things. When I took it back to saying, if I can just see what Jesus did, if I could just tell what Jesus' heart motive was, I'll be able to discover the will of God. And it took confusion away from me. Jesus is the expressed will of God. All the other questions that we have about the old covenant, all the other questions that we have about the Bible can be wrapped up into the answer of Jesus. What about Job? What about Jesus? What about Ananias and Sapphira? What about Jesus? What about Judas? What about Jesus? What about Herod? What about Jesus? What about Jesus? What if we can catch what he's trying to do and what he's doing throughout his life and just follow that? And in that, actually believe that God is a good God fully expressing his nature through his son. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, it says, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. I love that. The people that saw Jesus walking down the road could look and say, this right here is the God that I serve. Yet so many people missed him. So many people. You know what I loved about Jesus too? A lot of things, but <laughs> he never created a formula because if you hear a message like this, you'll say, just do what Jesus did. I'm not saying that, I'm saying catch Jesus's heart motive and follow his ways because we'll say, well, Jesus spit on the ground and he made mud. So the next time someone, whoop, putting them in their eyes, because this is what Jesus did. Yeah, but he didn't do that the next time. And he laid his hands on people one time, and then he commanded somebody to come back to life or to, come, uh, to, to be healed from a far distance. So there wasn't, there wasn't a formula 
in Jesus' life. There was the heart motive. There was the very nature of God being expressed. Are you guys with me? So we're not turning this into like, okay, so Jesus spit on the man. Jesus sent them this. So I have to do that. No, 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 no. Be led by the Holy Spirit. It's the heart. It's the motive that we're following. So it says here, Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. But how many times, how, how easy has it been in our lives to picture Jesus? Like he's the nice, soft one. He has the lamb on one, one lap and he has the little child here and he's here. But when you think of God, right? He's like 300 years old, really long beard and he's like mad. Right? We have to change the way we think. Jesus, your Jesus, your Lord, is the visible image of the invisible God. So if you can picture Jesus all mad and cranky with the lamb and the kid, and he's like, get off, then that's how you can look at God. If you can't picture Jesus like that, then you should not be picturing God like that. He said, as he existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. And through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. Stop there. Listen, you can't say, well, yeah, but Jesus came later. He's just New Testament. God was, listen to this. He existed before anything was created and is the supreme over all creation. For through Jesus, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. The things that we can and we can't see, it continues to say. Goes on in verse 19. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Now look at verse 19. Again, I pulled it from two different translations here. The New Living says this, God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. The NIV says, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Listen, we know that Jesus is God in a body, but we also know scriptures say that Jesus chose to empty himself of his divinity and walk the earth as a man. So he was human and he was sinless and he was full of the Holy Spirit. And because he was sinless and he was walking rightly with God, hearing the voice of God in, in, in tune with God, he had the fullness of God in him. And it said God was pleased that his fullness was there. How many of you know God is pleased when his fullness can be poured out in your life? Right? He's pleased when we say, God, I'm an open, empty vessel to be filled up by your very spirit. And we know that Jesus walked in the fullness of God because of the submission to God that he had. So I want us to start thinking, listen, if I can't find it in the life of Jesus, then I can't find it in the nature of God. We need to start seeing God through the new covenant. And we look, Jesus had very specific assignment to represent the goodness and the favor of God while he was on earth. We read this a few weeks ago. I'll touch back on it now. If you want to turn quickly to Luke chapter 14, I'll stay there just for a minute or two. Jesus is in a synagogue, and now he is reading from the Old Testament, because the New Testament, of course, wasn't written yet. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me 
to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the year of the Lord's favor has come. Now listen to this. These people did not know who Jesus was yet, right? This was like their normal routine here. If you, I'm not going to follow it out, but if you follow out the rest of this chapter, you'll see that he is proclaiming, listen, today this scripture is fulfilled. They're talking about me. And by the end of the time he leaves that church service, they want to throw him off of a cliff. So this isn't like, you know, this is like, we're like, yes, amen. This wasn't like a great day for Jesus to have his inaugural address. I want you to see what he's saying here, though. He's saying that the Father has anointed him for specific reasons, right? The preaching of the good news, healing, deliverance, freedom. The captives would completely be set free. But I want you to look at verse 19, because many people will miss this. It says, and that the year of the Lord's favor has come. Now, where this is from is Isaiah chapter 61. You could just write it down. Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1 and 2 is what he's actually reading from. Now, in Isaiah, that word year, the year, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor is an actual year. If you follow the word out in the New Testament, it's an era, not a year. So you don't have to think like, okay, well, the year of the Lord's favor was way back then when Jesus was there and he was preaching and now that's over. No, that word year is era. It's a period of time that we are still in. Okay? So the era of the Lord's favor has come. When has it come? It's come with Jesus. He brought it forth and it continues until he returns once again. So it says here, the year of the Lord's favor, it's the era that his favor has come. Now the Jews who were hearing this, they actually knew the end of the verse. The end of the verse is this. I'll read the whole verse from Isaiah. I think I, I may have put it up on the screen. It says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. What this means to the Jews is that the year of the Lord's favor benefits the Jewish people. And when that year would come, it would also be the day of vengeance for everyone who was not Jewish. Okay? So God's going to bless us and favor us. And when that comes, everybody else who's not a Jew is going to receive the vengeance of the Lord. What Jesus did by stopping there is saying, hey folks, the day or the year, the era of the Lord's favor has come, period, period. And he goes on to demonstrate how, how the Jews who will be hard-hearted and not hear his voice and not hear his message, that the message will go out to the ends of the earth that the Gentiles will be able to receive it, the Samaritans will be able to receive it. Anybody who's willing to bow their knee to the name of Jesus can come into this kingdom. So he's saying, listen, the favor's here. The vengeance is not coming yet. There is a final judgment. There is eternal separation for people who refuse to come to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But not yet. Not yet. Not yet. And when we know that this era, this time period of the Lord's favor is here, we can clearly see the goodness of God through the life of Jesus. In Luke chapter 19, just this one verse, verse 10, it says that the Son of Man, this is a name referring to Jesus, has come to seek and save that which was lost. He didn't come to judge. He didn't come to punish. He didn't come to do what some people say, send people to hell. No, that's not in his job description. He came to seek and save that which was lost. Save us from our sins. Bring us back to our created value. 
In 1 John 3.8, we've talked about this several weeks in this, in this series. The Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. So Jesus is not doing anything that we should be ascribing to the devil. He actually came to destroy the works of the devil and to bring people back into the Father's house. See, Jesus had a value system, and it was called the Father. He watched the Father. He listened to the Father. He reacted to what the Father was saying, and he lived out of that place of the presence of God in a value system. If we can follow that value system, follow his heart, follow his motives, we will actually begin to express the will of God in our own lives. So I'm going to look at three things. I think I mentioned them earlier today. Because I think this is where we start to misconceive the goodness of God. I want to talk about natural storms. I want to talk about people who are currently not walking with the Lord. And I want to talk about physical healing. And how we, at times, have ascribed things that are not from God to God. Not understanding the fullness of His goodness. So how did Jesus, if I'm going to look to God through the life of Jesus, I want to ask myself, what did Jesus do with natural storms? If you turn quickly to Matthew chapter 8, we're going to read about a storm that happened, what Jesus did with it. Matthew chapter 8, starting at verse 24. I like it. Turn the pages. It says, suddenly a fierce storm struck the lake with waves breaking into the boat. So this is a fierce storm. This is not something that's pretty. It says, but Jesus was sleeping. I love how, I love how the, the prince of peace was able to sleep in the midst of a storm. We get one big <laughs> in the middle of the night and we're like up and nervous. He was able to sleep. Wait, waves are coming in. Fierce storm. The prince of peace is able to sleep through that storm. I love it. I love it. The disciples went and woke him up shouting, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. Jesus says, why are you so afraid? You have so little faith. Now, we might think, well, that wasn't very nice. No, Jesus spoke all truth too. So when people need rebuked and confronted, he did that. Right? I'm not all, I mean, there, there's a reason why people didn't like him. Like Pharisees, like, they're, he's so rude. No, he's speaking the truth. Right? So maybe, maybe the image of Jesus just with the lamb and the little child here isn't the most accurate one also. <laughs> but he spoke truth to people who absolutely needed it, corrected or rebuked, even his own followers. He says, why are you so afraid? You have so little faith. Then he got up and he rebuked the wind and the waves, and suddenly there was a great calm. Now, I've heard this taught wrong before, that Jesus is going to calm all of the storms in your life. Okay, and I think that's out of context because that's not actually what happened here. And we have to realize this because if you think that, then what you can, you get the misconception that you can control somebody else. You start controlling them by saying, even Dan was talking about it last week, you start praying that God changes this person, this person. I'm going to speak to my storm and that person in my life is my storm. So I speak to, no, 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 no. They still can, they, they have control of their own lives or maybe the lack of control, but they've been given stewardship of their life. So if they don't choose to change, they're not going to change. You can change. And there's other verses on how you can do that. What this actually means is this. Jesus had authority over wind and waves. Do you know why I know that? The next verse says it. 
It says the disciples were amazed. Who is this man? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So it's just teaching here. He actually has authority over nature. So my question is this. If Jesus rebuked a storm, could it be possible that there are storms and natural disasters that are against the will of God happening today? If you believe that every natural disaster that comes up, this is the punishment of God, this is the wrath of God, then Jesus was acting in disobedience to the Father. So it is quite possible that there are warm fronts and cold fronts hitting together because of the systems that are working in this earth right now that are happening, that are actually against the will of God. Did Jesus ever cause a storm in his life? I mean, just think, think through, think through the red letters, think through the gospels. Did Jesus ever cause a warm front and a cold front to hit, to spin together and blast through a house, take out the mom and the dad to teach the child to come to Jesus? It sounds absurd, doesn't it? Did he ever create a storm to come and wipe through an entire city because they were filled with sin? Microbursts, just take out just the Pharisees, right? This thing could work through the crowd, boom, 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 and they'll all be gone. Did he do that? So if he wasn't creating storms that take people out, why do Christians say that God's doing that today if we're still in the era of the Lord's favor? Hurricane Katrina came, and I watched in the, the prophetic websites and so on of, of trusted men and women of God saying that this was God's judgment on New Orleans for living in sin. Close to 2,000 people lost their life during this storm, and I'm sure some of them were Christians. But we stood by and said, not just, I'm not saying this church, but as Christians stood by, and we're, we're, I guess it's okay that God knocks out some Christians too because it's going to bring this city back, you know, back to know the Lord. I mean, can you, can you picture the evangelistic campaign, right? God drowned your city because of your sin. And people are just running to the grace of God. Yes, we want to give our lives to Jesus. What I think is more absurd is this, is we say that this stuff is the judgment and the wrath of God. And then a week after it happens, these same prophetic people are actually receiving offerings to send down there to help restore. Wait a minute. If you believe that God's angry with us in this era and his judgment and his wrath is being poured out and he actually sent the storm. Please do not send money or volunteers to help clean up after the storm or you'll be working against your father's will. See, we have to work this stuff out, right? You have to come to a conviction that Jesus never sent a storm into someone's life. Jesus never sent a storm into a city. We have one instance of Jesus and he calmed the storm. He took authority over it. Meaning that bad stuff, yes, it absolutely does happen. And yes, there will be signs when the end of time is approaching. But we as believers should continue to be a light into the darkness. Help when there's tragedy. Don't blame somebody once they've lost four people in a natural disaster and say, well, God must have did this because of your sin. I'm not sure that's going to turn them to know Jesus as their Savior. The next example, what did Jesus do with sinners? I don't know where you are right now, but if you want to turn to Matthew chapter 8, or 9, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, starting at verse 10. The scripture is so clear, like, most people, when they know we're like growing in the Lord, 
they like want to stay away from us <laughs> if they're not following Jesus. And, and sinners, like, I'm not talking about the Pharisees right now because they thought they were righteous, but they weren't. I'm talking about people who just knew they were out of it. They just were living lives of debauchery. They actually liked to hang out with Jesus. There was something about his grace, something about his disposition, something about his heart that these men and women liked to be with him. So it says here in verse 10 of Matthew chapter 9, it says, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to the home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. Are you following me here? Like when's the last time you got invited to one of those parties? How many of you know there, were probably, there was probably a little bit of immorality and a little bit of drinking going on at this party? Many tax collectors who were hated by the people and disreputable sinners. It says, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? Well, right there in that one verse, you could tell the Pharisees' value system. And by Jesus responding, yes, I'll go and I'll be with your people, you could tell Jesus' value system. And he said, when Jesus heard this, he says, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. Then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. See, in that same time, Jesus is showing mercy and grace to people who know they need help. And he's rebuking the ones who don't even think they need the help. They think they had it all together with all of their sacrifices and all of their quote-unquote right living. And yet people who knew they were broken and they were lost, Jesus would spend as much time as he could with them because he came to seek and save those who were lost. In Luke chapter 9, we see another time. It says, as time drew near, starting at verse 51, for Jesus to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead to a Samaritan village. So Samaritans and Jews did not hang out. We'll just leave it there to prepare for his arrival. In verse 53, it says, the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. So the Samaritan's like, no way. We're not giving you the shortcut. Get out. When James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? Right? Jesus, we're going to get Old Testament on these people. We're going to get Old Covenant. Can I call fire down? You've given us authority. You've given us power. And what does he do? He turns to them and he rebukes them. And if you look at, if you follow your study notes out, if you have a study Bible, in a few translations, not in all of them, that's why they don't list that most likely in the verses, it says, and Jesus said to them, don't you realize what kind of spirit you are of? For the Son of Man has not come to destroy people's lives, but to save them. So they simply went on to another village. This is what we see Jesus. This is how we see Jesus acting and behaving and interacting with sinners. And I think about Christians, how quick we are to say, God, they're walking in wickedness. They're destroying my life. They're doing this and that. Take them out. Let your judgment fall. Let your wrath come. But just an hour earlier, when you woke up in the morning, you said, God, thank you for grace. Thank you for forgiving me of all my sins. Thank you that you've, you've not, you don't remember any more of all of my mistakes. So we're so thankful that Jesus has done that with us, but we are so quick to want him to bring old covenant back into their lives. There's something wrong with that. 
God can't be mocked. And there is a day of judgment. And he will absolutely have his way. Don't worry, God's not just going to let someone slip on by. Oh, I forgot him. Go ahead, go ahead. No, it's okay. They, each person will take account for their own life. We are not the judge or the jury. We are the light. We are carrying the solution to people's problems, the answer to their questions. Again, his name is Jesus. When you look at evil and you look at wickedness, pray that the Lord would send somebody, if it would not be you, into their path, that they might just bow their knee to Jesus and start a revolution within their own tribe of people, that they would all come to know him and then testify of his goodness. Maybe that is God's will. Maybe it's God's will that none should perish. Maybe the Bible says that God is willing that none should perish. So we should fight for that through prayer and through our actions. Last part I want to talk about briefly is physical healing and deliverance. So what did Jesus do with the sick and with those who are tormented? In Acts chapter 10, verse 38, this was obviously after Jesus had already ascended. This is a retelling of an incident with Jesus. He says, and you know, this is Acts chapter 10, verse 38. And you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Jesus went around doing good and healing all, right? Jesus didn't go around doing a little bit of good and a little bit of bad. Jesus didn't go around healing some of the people, but then some of the people, they've just been bad, so they're going to stay there. No, Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. So God, again, God's nature, the exact representation of the character of God was radiating from the life of Jesus. And it was all good. And he healed them all. Throughout Jesus's life, he healed everyone who came to him for healing. This is the baseline that we have to work from. God's will is for us to be healed. Now, I understand that hurts people and it offends people to hear that because someone, we all probably have someone close to us who's not healed of something. You yourself might have something in your body. And what happens is the devil can use that to discourage you because if you declare out of your mouth, it is God's will for me to be healed, the devil says, then you would be healed. If God's so good, then why aren't you healed, right? And he starts to whisper things and instead of you getting continued to focus on the goodness of God, we get focused on the voice of the enemy. If we see God through the life of Jesus, not one person came sick to Jesus and left sick. They all left well. That should not cause any guilt or condemnation on you at all if you're sick or if someone close to you is sick. That should build your faith that God wants you to be well. Because we never saw Jesus give somebody a sickness while he walked the earth. In fact, in Jesus' time when he walked the earth and even and all before that, it was actually believed what this verse said. He healed those who were oppressed by the devil. People believed that sickness was from the devil and healing was from God. Right? But we get offended when we hear that too. Well, I don't know. I mean, this is a good person, a good, holy Christian person. How, how does the devil have access to this person? How does the devil do this? Listen. That's, I'm not going to get caught up in all of that stuff. I'm not condemning that person. I'm not saying they're caught in sin. I'm not saying, well, you must have a wide open door for the devil to attack you. No, I know the answer is Jesus. 
And I know if he did it when he walked here and we have the same spirit in us that he had in him that we can pray for God to heal that person. So I'm not saying every single person that's walking and has something wrong with them, like the devil's all over them and attacking them. What I'm saying is this. The Bible's quite clear that sin and sickness originated with the devil, not with God. And we know the devil is, is, is walking around trying to steal, kill, and destroy, not God. And we know Jesus went around healing all who were oppressed by the devil. A little side note, if I can encourage you, when you catch some, some, some of this revelation in your life and you, and you know sickness is not from God, if someone is extremely sick or someone passes away, the worst thing you could do is go to a family member and say, listen, I just want to let you know I know this is from the devil. This is of the devil. Listen, when people are hurting and grieving, how about coming alongside them and encourage them and lift them up? Keep all of your theological statements to yourself at that time. Lift them up, build them up, and then look at Scripture later. You fight the fight of faith with them when they're weak. You got me? So we want to be a, a loving people when people are hurting. All right, so someone, Christian man or woman, maybe they lose their life to a tragedy, an accident, uh, you know, a sickness, whatever. We're not going to have those answers. We know the answer is Jesus, and we continue to seek him. In Matthew 4, just in verse, 4, uh, in verse 24, and, we're, and we're, we're wrapping up here. It says, news about him spread as far as Syria, and people soon began bringing to him all who were sick. Whatever their sickness or disease, or if they were demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. I love this. There was no boundary at all to, God, to Jesus' healing power. And I, I even like this too. He clumps together here, not just sickness or disease, but you know, just throw in the demon possessed too, right? So think about this. Would you ever think it was not God's will to deliver somebody who was possessed by a demon? Right? You would think absolutely 100% of the time. Yet there are Christians who believe that God allows and gives sickness. But the same time Jesus heals sickness is the same time he delivered people who were possessed by demons or epileptic or paralyzed. It says he healed them all. It's all in the same package. It's all in that sozo, the forgiveness, the healing, the deliverance. This is the package we get when we come to know Jesus, when we encounter the name of Jesus. So you have to ask yourself these questions. Did Jesus ever give someone a disease so they could spend time in bed and do more devotions? No. Is it possible that when you're sick and you're in your bed, you're spending more time with him? Say yes. Is it possible that God, something could happen in your life that wasn't from God, but he could still win through it? Yes. Sometimes we, we lie to ourselves and we said, man, God put me on my back for these last three weeks with the flu, and I came out of it stronger with him than ever before. I spent more time praying, more time reading the word. Wait a minute. When you're healthy, just etch out more time to be with him. And this thing can carry along. You don't have to wait till the next time you get the flu to get right with Jesus. Right? No, this, we actually lie to ourselves and say this stuff. We look at the result, and if the result looks more like Jesus, then we think he's the one that had to have caused it. Instead of, you know what, bad things happen in this life and Jesus still wins. All right? 
You don't, you don't ever see Jesus causing an untimely death so the rest of the family comes back to him. Jesus was the exact representation of the nature of God. And he never made someone sick. He healed everyone. I want you to think, if you've said that before, I, I, want, I want you to repent in your own time. If you've ever said that before, well, God gave me this. God allowed this to happen. If you believe that God allows people and gives people illnesses so they get closer with him, then you also believe that the father is in direct disobedience to the son. The son took every beating and whipping that was necessary for us to be healed of all of our diseases. When you look at the cross, right? It's forgiveness, it's healing, it's deliverance. So if we believe that the cross brought everybody to the opportunity to, to get saved, then he also, it also brought forth the same opportunity for people to be delivered and to be healed. And I want you to think about this too. If you believe that sometimes God, you know, I, I've been living over here and God just whacked me with this disease or this illness or this sickness. If you believe that he causes things like this to happen and you go to the doctor to get medicine or you try to do, you put an ice pack on it, you are disobeying God. Do you ever think about that? God allowed this in my life, but I'm, I'm going to just keep popping the pills until I get better. No, 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 no. You're trying to shorten something that you believe God gave you. If you believe God gives you sickness, your only option is to lay there and suffer until it's over. And then thank God for it at the end. I believe in healing. I pray for the sick. I anoint people with oil. I also take a pill when I need to. I go to the doctor when I need to. I do what I can because I know God wants me well. So whatever I'm feeling led by the Holy Spirit to do, I do it without guilt and condemnation. We pray, we pray, we didn't see breakthrough. Pray and pray, we didn't see breakthrough. All right, so you're taking some medicine. All right, walk in faith knowing that God has given people giftings and talents to create natural cures out of things. Like, live, just live accepted, live loved, know God wants you well. Don't let people condemn you or bring guilt upon you because you're choosing a path that's different than them. Without minimizing your theology that Jesus is the healer of all disease. We look throughout the New Testament. We see his patience with children. We see his abundance of resources. We see Jesus' kindness with hurting and lonely people. We see Jesus accepting outcasts in society. But we also see Jesus being stern and bold and rebuking people who are walking in pride. And through all of this, we can see the goodness of God if we just look to the nature of Jesus. In fact, we're going to end today's service by looking at the way, the demonstration of the goodness of God through the cross. We're going to do that by taking Holy Communion together at this time. And when we think about communion, it's a time where we, rem we actually were remembering the sacrifice that Jesus made, right? We're remembering how he freed us from the grip of sin, how he freed us from the grip of the enemy, how he became a curse so that we might be blessed, how he was beaten so we could be healed. And ultimately, when we look at this cross, it's how the enemy was defeated, how we could be reunited with God, made right with God, how we could become children of God. You know, we think, when we think about this cross, it's a place of death. 
is not just a place of Jesus' death because when we come to Jesus, the Bible says that we were then crucified with Christ. So when you think about the cross, it's not just a place where Jesus died. When we look at the cross, it's a place where we died to our old nature, where we willfully came before the cross of Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ and said, I am choosing to die to my old nature. I'm choosing to end the way I used to live. I'm choosing to stop the selfishness, the self-centeredness, trying to walk my own path in life, and it starts right at the cross. The amazing thing about the cross is, is Jesus didn't just come to an end of himself. He led himself to the cross, right? He chose to go to the cross. Just like I'm asking you to choose to come to the cross, to an end of yourself. And he was also buried just like our sinful nature can be buried. Our wicked ways can be buried. Our selfishness can be buried. All of the things that we do for ourselves can be buried in that tomb with Christ. And I love how when you look at that cross, you also see the empty tomb. Because you know he was resurrected and you know the word is quite clear. That we, when we come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, we also are resurrected to new life. So this cross is not a stopping point. We don't come to the cross and stop. We come to the cross and pass through the cross and leave our old man, our old woman, our old nature behind at the foot of the cross. And we walk through and we let all that junk in our lives be buried until we are raised back to new life with Jesus, our resurrected King. That's what we should see. That's what we should know when we look at this cross. Today, once again, we just proclaim your goodness. We declare you are good. We thank you that the veil has been removed, that the hearts have been softened, that we can see God for who he truly is, a good, good God. We love you. We thank you for sending your only son to die on that cross and to be resurrected. Father, we ask for your blessing and your favor to flow in our lives until we meet again. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said, amen. Thank you for joining us. Be sure to check us out on the web at centralconnect.org.